Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 1, reading from verses 11 to 24, and reading from the New Revised Standard Version. For I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel that was proclaimed by me is not of human origin, for I did not receive it from a human source, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. You have heard, no doubt, of my earlier life in Judaism. I was vilely, <coughs> violently persecuting the Church of God and was trying to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many amongst my people of the same age, for I was far more zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. But when God, who had set me apart before I was born and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might proclaim him among the Gentiles, I did not confer with any human being, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were already apostles before me. But I went away at once into Arabia, and afterwards I returned to Damascus. Then, after three years, I did, <coughs> I did go up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and stayed with him for 15 days. But I did not see any other apostle except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard it said, the one who formerly was persecuting us is now proclaiming the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. In the first book of Kings, chapter 17, verses 17 to 24. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. His illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. She then said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. But he said to her, Give me your son. He took him from her bosom, carried him up to the upper chamber where he was lodging, and laid him on his own bed. He cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I am staying by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. The Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. The life of the child came into him again, and he revived. Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and gave him to his mother. Then Elijah said, See, your son is alive. So that the woman said to Elijah, now I know you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. The third reading 
is to be found on page 70 of the New Testament section in the Pew Bibles and concerns the widow of Nain. It is from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 7, verses 11 to 17, reading from the New Revised Standard Version. Soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went with him. As he approached the gate of the town, a man who had died was being carried out. He was his mother's only son, and she was a widow. And with her was a large crowd from the town. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came forward and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, rise. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized all of them, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has looked favorably on his people. This word about him spread throughout Judea and all the surrounding country. Thanks be to God. The death of a young person is never good news. Whether it's a young soldier at the hands of extremists, a young woman at the hands of her abductor, the tragically youthful victim of accident or illness, or the young sons of widows in ancient Israel. The premature ending of life is tragic and distressing. It always has been and it always will be. And it's something that affects not only the immediate family and friends of the person who has died, but the whole community within which they lived. There is something about a young death that affects everyone who hears of it. It grieves the soul. It challenges our perceptions of our own mortality. And it requires of us a choice as to how we will live in the light of our own continuing existence. Last weekend, Liz and I went to visit the John Keats House Museum in Hampstead. And we were struck not only by the tragedy of his death at the uh, tender age of 25 from tuberculosis, but also by the fact that by the time Keats died, he had, by some estimations, revolutionised English poetry even if the extent of his contribution wasn't recognised until some years after his untimely death. Indeed, part of the tragedy of Keats' story was that he knew he was dying, he knew what tuberculosis meant, and he was convinced that he had failed in his task of writing poetry of enduring value. He famously wrote to his fiancée, Fanny Broad, and said, I have left no immortal work behind me, nothing to make my friends proud of my memory, but I have loved the principle of beauty in all things, and if I had had time, I would have made myself remembered. So said the great and eternally young John Keats. Well, knowing that the passages for today's sermon were two stories of untimely death, 
over the last week, I found myself thinking about other people who are known not only for their contributions to humanity, but also for their own tragically early deaths. There's a surprising number of them. From Anne Frank to Eddie Cochran, Buddy Holly to James Dean, Alexander the Great to Princess Diana, Vincent van Gogh to Caravaggio, Amadeus Mozart to Amy Winehouse, the list could go on and on. And there is something deeply compelling about the tragic combination of youthful demise with the brilliance of youthful prodigy. The questions are unavoidable. What would they have become if they had lived? How, what further greatness has been denied humanity? How best can we immortalize their memory and contribution? In some ways, it can seem as if society seeks almost to deify those who die young, with the retrospective of obituary, providing the opportunity to canonize their contribution and purge their shortcomings. There is a, an old and somewhat cynical saying amongst ministers, that if you want your church to speak of you fondly, you should leave. But if you want them to remember you forever as a saint, you should die in office. There is another saying that only the good die young, which has its own cynical counter-assertion that only the young die good. Anyway, enough of cynicism. It's time to turn to the scriptures. The two passages from this morning, one from the first book of Kings and the other from Luke's Gospel, tell very similar stories. Both narratives feature a widow, a woman who has lost her husband, and along with her husband, her financial security and her status within society. In both stories, the widow's only hope for the future rests with her only son. These, you understand, were patriarchal days. Women didn't normally work for money, at least not honorably and so they relied on their husbands or sons to provide for them. The life of a widow with no son was no life at all. She would be at the mercy of the charity of others, alone in a hostile world. And in both of our stories, the only son of the lonely widow falls sick and dies. The death of a child is always a terrible tragedy. But for a widow in ancient Israel, it meant more than personal grief. It meant economic destitution and social rejection. Both these stories, tragic though they are, were also stories of normality. Widows were not uncommon. Childhood illnesses were not uncommon. Lack of food was not uncommon. Teenage death was not uncommon. A widow whose son dies was not uncommon. Tragic? Yep. Heartbreaking? Yes. Uncommon? No. And yet in both these stories, the unexpected happens. The oh-so-predictable outcome of the story is subverted. The future is rewritten. The certainty of death is confronted with the unforeseen intervention of resurrection. And suddenly, everything is different. Let's start with Elijah and the widow of Zarephath. If you don't know the story that leads up to this, 
then your homework can be to go and away and read the first part of chapter 17 if you've never read it before. The context here is Elijah's lone struggle against the Baal cult, which King Ahab had introduced into Israel. And at Elijah's proclamation, the Lord had sent a drought on the land to, to provoke Ahab into repentance, to turn back to the Lord and away from Baal. But the drought was affecting everyone, from the king to Elijah himself, to the poor widow and her son. By rights, they should all have been at death's door. Elijah himself had only survived this far because he'd been miraculously fed by ravens. He then turned up at the house of the widow, who was setting about preparing her final meal for herself and her son so that they could eat together one last time before dying together. And of course it wasn't their last meal because God intervened again in the story to bring unexpectedly life from a situation of certain death. The widow and her son and Elijah were miraculously stained by what sustained by what I can only think of as the 9th century BC equivalent of a bottomless cup of coffee. As I say, if you don't know the story, it's worth reading. The story clearly has something of the tone of a folklore myth about it. A pot of oil and a jug of grain that never, never run out. It's probably best not to get too hung up on the historical questions of being fed by birds or poor widows doing Jamie Oliver-style cooking using jars of food that have gone all magic porridge pots. The point is clear. Death does not have the final word when God gets involved in the story. But death does still have some cards to play. And whilst the good news of the miraculous food is good news, it quickly gives way to the tragedy of illness as the young man succumbs to sudden sickness. The widow mother's response was typically human. Did you notice it? She blamed Elijah, then God, and then herself in quick succession. That's so normal, isn't it? In the face of a death. Who can I blame? God? Him? Me? But then again, God intervened, this time through the direct actions of Elijah. And the child who had died is restored to life and to his mother, giving her back not only her son, but also her hope for the future. And again, the point is clear. Death does not get the last word when God gets involved in the story. Which brings us to the Gospel of Luke and to his account of Jesus' visit to the widow of Nain and her son. The setup for this story has actually occurred a few chapters earlier, when Jesus was invited to preach in the synagogue at Nazareth and took the opportunity to deliver his now famous exposition on the Isaiah scroll. If we were to turn a few chapters earlier to Luke chapter 4, we would find in verses 17 to 18, Jesus reading from the Isaiah scroll. He opens the scroll and he stands up and he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And then having read that and said, this is today fulfilled in your presence, Jesus preaches a short sermon. And in the sermon, he says the following. This is Luke chapter 4, verses 25 to 26. 
The truth is, says Jesus, there were many widows in Israel at the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over the land, yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. Jesus, of course, referring to the passage we had read to us from 1 Kings. In his sermon, Jesus took the words of Isaiah, which had been taken by the Jews of his day as applying to them and to them alone, and Jesus reinterpreted them as applying to anyone who was in need, whatever their ethnicity, whatever their class, whatever their gender. And he pointed out that Elijah, the great prophet of Israel, had been sent not to the aid of Israel, but to the aid of an impoverished Gentile widow. Poor, foreign woman. And through this and some other examples, Jesus' little sermon in Luke chapter 4 directly challenged the dominant protectionist mindset that sought to preserve the privileges of history for the heirs of the powerful. To this end, Jesus provocatively pointed to examples in Israel's history, the Elijah visiting the widow at Zarephath amongst them, which demonstrated that God's concern had actually always been for those beyond the boundaries of the chosen nation. God's concern was never simply and exclusively for his chosen people. Jesus' sermon was, in effect, a manifesto for the overturning of the old order. And his visit to the widow of Nain's house, which Luke narrates in language that deliberately echoes the visit of Elijah to the widow of Zarephath, becomes a visible enactment of the point he made in his sermon. The old order had decreed that women couldn't work. The old order decreed that widows would be impoverished. The old order decreed that the sick would die. And to a world where the old order had reigned unchallenged, Jesus brought the challenge to end all challenges. This wasn't some idealistic preacher exchanging his pulpit for a soapbox whilst expounding a vision of utopian equality. Rather, this was a man of God who lived the message he proclaimed. And so, having preached the sermon, he then went. He went to the widow of Nain, just as Elijah had gone to the widow of Zarephath. And again, the point is clear. When God gets involved in the story, death does not get the last word. The boy had died, and he should have stayed dead. The widow's world had ended and should have stayed ended. But Jesus disrupts the old order, bringing new life, new hope, new beginnings. The message of resurrection is here and it is clear. When God gets involved in the story, death does not get the last word. So back to the story. Did you notice the crowds? No? How could you miss them? There are two huge crowds in Luke's story. Listen to the first couple of verses again and see if you spot them this time. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went with him. As he approached the gate of the town, a man who had died was being carried out. He was his mother's only son, and she was a widow, and with her was a large crowd from the town. One large crowd are following Jesus and his disciples. The other large crowd are following the dead body of a young man. One crowd are following life, and the other crowd are following death. There is no doubt 
death attracts a crowd. And the sudden and tragic death of a young person attracts a very big crowd. It was ever thus, and the media frenzies of our own day are merely the latest manifestation of the common desire to gaze on death, to experience vicariously the grief of the bereaved, and to begin the process of collectively immortalizing the memory of any young person taken by such cruel fate. But life attracts a crowd as well. The overturning of the old order is compelling. The good news for the poor, the release for those held captive, the restoration of sight to the blind, these are good news if you are poor, captive, and living in darkness. The promise of new life, where death appears to reign supreme, is good news for those facing death. But it is also challenging news for those who stand to benefit from the ongoing reign of death. It pulls the rug out from under the feet of those who might seek to control the narrative of death. It deconstructs those who might find it expedient to take the story of the recently departed and retell it for their own ends. The new life to the widows of Zarephath and Nain was good news for them. But it was profoundly disturbing news for those who had a vested interest in creating a history which maintains the belief that God-given privileges of society were for a small group defined by those who are already inside that group. The crowds surrounding Jesus when he preached his sermon in Nazareth understood this, and this is why they tried to kill him, by taking him to the top of a cliff and throwing him off it. It's that crowd mentality again, you see. And which crowd are we in? I wonder. Are we in the crowd that follows the dead boy, feeling oh so sorry for the victims of tragedy, whilst remaining thankful that it's not us the tragedy has affected? Perhaps retelling the story to our own advantage, where the survivors are the winners and the winners take it all? Or are we in the crowd that follows life, the crowd that confronts death head on? and refuses to allow the narrative of death to have the final word. Because if we're in the second crowd, if we're in the crowd that follows life, then we're part of the crowd that is called to join Jesus in challenging the dominant order of the world. We're part of the crowd that refuses to accept the status quo, where the poor, the destitute, the sick and the dying are simply to be pitied. We're part of the crowd that is committed to joining with Jesus and Elijah in going beyond the boundaries of the acceptable, as we seek to bring new life to those whose life stories are dominated by death. We're part of the crowd that knows that when God gets involved in the story, death does not have the final word. We're part of the crowd that sees the importance of benefits for the poor, of help for the destitute, of health care for the sick, if we are part of the crowd that follows life, then we are ourselves called to become the agents of resurrection in a world that continues to believe in and invest in the narratives of death. So to a world that says one death must be punished by another, we say that forgiveness and restoration are more important than retribution. To a world that says that the poor deserve their lot, we say that the poor are dearly loved children of God. 
To a world that says those who are not like us do not deserve equal rights in our society, we say that Jesus has called us to go beyond the barriers of ethnicity and culture with messages of hope and new life. To a world that says equitable distribution of global resources is an unrealistic objective, we say that it is not acceptable that one in eight are dying of starvation whilst many in the Western world are dying of obesity. To a world that wrings its hands at the suffering caused by climate chaos whilst continuing to plunder the planet for profit, we say there is a different way of being human, which rejects the dominant narratives of consumption unto death. To a world that says death is the end, we say it is not the end when God is part of the story. To a world that fears death, we say that death is not to be feared because life itself finds meaning in the resurrection of Christ. Those of us who have died and been raised with Christ, those of us who have been baptised into Christ's death and resurrection, are those who live and proclaim the message of life. We are those who live and proclaim the gospel of the good news of life. Resurrection is not about where we go when we die. It's about so much more than this. It's about discovering life in the midst of death. It's about plundering hell and bringing the lost to new life. It is the good news of the gospel of Christ who calls us to follow him and to share in the establishment of his inbreaking, revolutionary, resurrection-centred kingdom. This is the call of the one who brings life from death. <laughs>